Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the RSE, which is the Royal Society of Edinburgh and is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And as part of that, I'm having a series of conversations with some of Scotland's leading authorities on a whole range of topics, starting with exploring different perspectives on the coronavirus pandemic. The conversations are all with fellows of the RSE who are keen to share their expertise and experience. This week, I'm speaking about the impact of COVID-19 on ethnic minorities with Professor Nazar Mir, Professor of Race, Identity and Citizenship at the University of Edinburgh and a member of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission. Nazar also sits on the Scottish Government's expert reference group on COVID-19 and ethnicity. So we're not in a coffee house, we're both in our own homes, which explains the occasional dip in sound quality. But I'd encourage you to grab yourself a drink of something, sit back, listen to one of Scotland's leading experts talk about things that matter. So Nazar, the COVID pandemic has affected everyone in some way, but I think there's been increasing recognition recently that those impacts fall unequally across society and as reflected in different levels of vulnerability to the disease and indeed mortality rates. And I wonder if you can tell us about how COVID-19 has impacted on ethnic minorities across the UK. Yeah, so we now have a pretty good evidence base to say that individuals in black, uh, Asian and minority ethnic groups are at increased risk of mortality due to COVID-19, so they're more likely to die, and that those of black African and black Caribbean descent appear to be of the greatest risk. Now, this has been confirmed in a number of different studies and sources, and most recently in a Public Health England inquiry, which to some extent had to be cajoled from the health secretary to be released into the public domain. What that showed and what it confirmed was that people of Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, Asian, other Caribbean and other black ethnicities, which are the categories we use in the census, had between 10% and 50% higher risk of death when compared to white British groups. Now, this is a reversal of what we've seen in previous years when levels of mortality have actually been lower amongst these groups. And there are disproportionate outcomes in terms of mortality and death, but also in terms of hospitalisation and so on. It's pretty consistent with what we're seeing elsewhere in the world, in Sweden, in data coming from the US and in Sweden as well. Uh, Sorry, in Spain as well. To some extent, it's a reflection of geographical concentration in particular areas. You know, so in the UK, it's especially being pronounced in places like London, in the Midlands, in the Northwest, where there's the concentration of black and ethnic minorities. But these risks are over and beyond that as well. It's not just about geography. And it's especially surprising because of everything else you know about COVID-19, where a younger age structure is meant to have some kind of protective effect. And black and ethnic minorities in the UK have a younger age structure, they're a younger population, and so on. So it's quite a pronounced differential, and it slightly varies according to sectors and occupations and so on. So there's one study by the Health Services Journal, which showed some quite alarming figures, which was uh, of the deaths in healthcare workers, around 63% were black and ethnic minority, about 36% were Asian, and about 27% were people of black ethnicities, which is consistent with an over-representation of these groups within what we call key worker populations, which means that they're more likely to be exposed to COVID-19 than other sectors. So we're talking here about healthcare workers, social care, task force, a workforce as cleaners, people who work in public transport, retail work and so on. So there is quite a pronounced disparity, yeah. 
And and so you, you mentioned the sort of differences according to people's exposure and the sorts of occupations they're doing. Are are there ever things that you think underlie those differences, or things that we know are the um, the causes of those differences? Well, some people say, not me, but some people say that at the most kind of proximal level, so the centering on the body, the pronounced differences or certainly the vulnerabilities of ethnic minority groups reflect greater levels of what you might call pre-existing chronic health conditions. So things like cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, which are the most common illnesses that are observed in COVID-19 fatalities. And that's something which we know to be true from, you know, survey, health surveys, like the Scottish Diabetes Survey shows that there's a disproportionate number of black and ethnic minorities with, an ethnic, with elevated levels of diabetes. And the same is true for the health survey in England. What starts to challenge that as an explanation for this on its own is that these conditions are not only more prevalent in the UK's black and ethnic minority groups than, than the white groups, but they start to manifest at an earlier age. So one of the striking findings from the health survey in England is uh, the health of white English people aged about between 61 and 70. Remarkably, it's comparable to that of people of Caribbean and Indian descent who are aged 46 to 50. And then Pakistani people that are aged 36 to 40. And then people of Bangladeshi background who are aged 26 to 30. So it's true that ethnic minority populations are more susceptible to critical complications if they contract COVID-19 because of these underlying conditions. But there's a story behind these underlying conditions, which is why people like me and others who are working on this topic keep returning to this question of what we call the social determinants of health. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there are already pre-existing health inequalities for ethnic minorities that have in some way been, I guess, amplified and reinforced by COVID. And you, you were just then beginning to talk about the story behind those differences and the social determinants. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So, so what does social determinants mean? Yeah, no, that's, that's precisely right. So in simple terms, what, what social determinants of health means is that you don't uncouple the susceptibility of illness, in this case, this virus, from their wider social exposures, right? And so, for example, we know that socioeconomic status has been linked to the incidence and the severity of viral pneumonia in recent years. And that's, that's a social gradient. So you can map the relationship between your social economic status and your likelihood to contract viral pneumonia in normal times, which is quite alarming, which is then exacerbated in the context of, of COVID-19. We know, for example, that the risks associated with COVID-19 transmission can be exacerbated by things like housing challenges faced by members of black and ethnic minority communities. You know, overcrowding can lead to increased COVID-19 transmission as individuals in households are effectively unable to self-isolate properly. We know that people from black and ethnic minorities are more likely to live in intergenerational housing, you know, from grandparents, parents, children which then leads to a greater risk of transmission between younger children and older adults. And the reasons for that are, are not just cultural. It's not the case that black and ethnic minorities have a cultural tendency to live together in a big house. A lot of that has to do with socioeconomic status and what's sometimes called housing precarity. So almost all ethnic groups, ethnic minority groups in the UK, are more reliant on, on private rented housing than the white British majority. And that's something which is especially true for, for new migrants who are overwhelmingly reliant on private rented accommodation. So more risk of being unable to have the capacity in their home that the people who own their homes necessarily are able to have. So that's one illustration of the way in which social determinants of health matter. I mean, 
there's other ways which people like me want to talk about, which is to say that whilst it's undoubtedly true that pre-existing conditions are important in these groups, you know, we also need to ask why would we expect health outcomes for black and ethnic minorities to be different or better when they're not better in other sectors, in the education system, in the criminal justice system, in child welfare. And I suppose that means we need to kind of get over our retinence of connecting some of the explanations we have for those differentials. You know, we know, for example, that um, racial discrimination is a feature of those outcomes. We know that racial discrimination is a feature of people having lower incomes, having low status occupations, having poorer employment conditions, being worse off educationally. We know that racial discrimination contributes to people feeling like they live in hazardous environments. We know that racial discrimination contributes to trauma. We know that it means that people have very negative relationships to institutions, which is so important for health access. So there's there's something which does the rounds in my field of work called weathering, which is about thinking of the experience of black and ethnic minorities over the life course. So rather than it being one incident, thinking about things chipping away and taking their toll on people and groups cumulatively rather than just on one moment, which is a way in which some clinical approaches are thinking about the impact of COVID-19. So in terms of, you know, thinking about that experience of life course, I mean, it sounds from what you're saying that there's, you talked about the, the reticence maybe to talk about some of these issues. Is that reticence a distinction between sort of policy and research or, or is there a difference of a view within academia about sort of what underlies some of these uh, differences? Yeah, I'd say both. I'd say there are competing research perspectives. And some of this has to do with the proximity to what's being studied. So it's not unusual for people doing clinical work to focus you know, on the body and then immediately around that in terms of the disease and not necessarily to take the long view in terms of broad public health trends. So that's one thing. And that's got a disciplinary cleavage to it. So social scientists, even social scientists who do quantitative work, you know, will, will take a different view to people who necessarily do clinical work. But it's also a, a reflection of the relationship between policymakers and researchers. People like me sitting in universities who were able to do research can pretty much tell it as it is or as we find it. I think it's harder for legislators to accept that things like institutional racism may be part of a, part of a menu of explanations for these differentials. And I think we kind of need to get beyond that. I think that we were previously in a time when legislators and people who worked in the policy process would use terms like institutional racism. And they understood that racism is a multi-form concept. You know, it's not just about somebody being called a name or, you know, somebody being unpleasant to somebody in the workplace. Actually, you know, it's multifactorial. It spans labor markets, housing, criminal justice, health and so on. And we've moved away from that, which partly explains what I was describing at the outset, which was the reticence for Public Health England to report on the wider consultations they did, because those consultations largely confirmed the view amongst health practitioners, community advocates, stakeholders, that one of the biggest explanations for this disproportionality is black and ethnic minority experiences of racism and discrimination. So how do you think we can, because that's a really important issue, and if we're not sort of talking about these things or talking about them in the way they need to be talked about, obviously we're not going to come up with the means of tackling them. I mean, have you got any thoughts on how we might be able to support a more open conversation that actually recognises some of the complexities around what's happening and has a bit more of a candid approach, I guess, to the things that are going on? Well, one is just to recognise <laughs> these concepts have some explanatory value. 
and that they resonate with communities or the clients that policymakers are trying to serve. And then being vigilant and being proactive around that. So, for example, one of the things that we encourage the Scottish government to do in taking a perhaps distinctive approach, certainly from the Westminster approach, is to actively seek out community-based organisations from ethnic minority groups, which will help them develop a fuller and more complete understanding of the dynamics of COVID-19 and its, and its impact. And that includes things like thinking about not just the, the virus, but sick pay, national insurance provisions, especially thinking about ways of covering people who, you know, for example, work in the gig economy, who are disproportionately impacts black and ethnic minorities. Thinking about things like universal credit, low pay, ensuring that universal credit doesn't have that lengthy wait period, which then exacerbates the current inequalities that black and ethnic minorities find themselves in. And to think about how kind of historic racial inequalities dovetail in the present experience of COVID-19. And, you know, one of the things that's certainly focusing our minds is that there's going to be a medium and long-term challenge when, when we come out of this. You know, we anticipate there being quite a disproportionate economic impact from the lockdown on black and ethnic minorities, which will widen those inequalities, partly because of the nature of the occupations that have been predominantly, you know, held by black and ethnic minorities. So what's sometimes called the COVID-19 shutdown will be especially felt in sectors like transport, in restaurant work, which is precisely where Bangladeshi groups, Pakistani groups, predominantly are concentrated in levels of their work. So, I mean, I think that interconnection with other inequalities is really interesting and really important and actually looking at those inequalities through different lenses. I mean, this is obviously an area that you've worked on for a long amount of time. Is there anything that sort of surprised you in terms of the work you've been doing to look at the impact of COVID-19 on ethnic minorities? So in a way, yes and no, I mean, uh, which is probably going to be true of everybody who works in this field, nothing has emerged that, that theoretically researchers wouldn't have foreseen. Uh, and really, if anything, it's kind of been like a dark natural experiment, which is, you know, you effectively put a tracing agent through a system and it highlights all the weaknesses. We knew that inequalities weren't tied to a single sector or single sphere, that they were, that they were multifaceted. And we knew that where there wasn't lots of evidence, the existing material confirmed that disproportionality was, you know, felt in people's lives, even if we didn't have the quantitative data to, to recognise that. And COVID-19's really kind of illustrated that and illustrated it in a lethal way. And one of the outcomes or the challenges for people in my field or people interested in looking at this from a social determinants of health perspective is to get policymakers to think seriously about Pursuing actions which don't necessarily have, you know, longitudinal data sets to support. And this is this difference here between, you know, a clear lack of evidence and a lack of clear evidence. And I think we've probably had a lack of clear evidence around some of these issues, but enough to act on. Whereas I think sometimes policymakers have thought that that's the same as a clear lack of evidence. I mean, certainly one of the things obviously in the Public Health England recent report was there were a number of recommendations around the need for better data and more research. But it sounds like what you're saying is not saying we don't need that, but actually we've also got an awful lot that we already know that we could use to guide decisions. I mean, in that context, are there any particular interventions you think government, whether Scottish government or the UK government, should be taking now to address some of the issues that COVID-19 has shone a spotlight on? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to row back from the need to generate more data, 
I think that's really important. I think rather than just generating new data, the challenge has often been data linkage between different sectors. So tying up census data to NHS data to local authority data. And then, as I've indicated, you know, marrying that to things like educational outcomes, to labor market participation, to criminal justice experiences. And to be fair to the last UK administration from 2015, the cabinet office embarked on what it called was the race disparity audit and generated some really useful portals. Though, you know, it confirmed kind of what we already knew, but it was just good to have that, to be able to utilize that. Scotland didn't join that up in the same way. So that's certainly something that Scotland can do in terms of generating the data. But you're right in terms of your second part of your question. There is enough information to be making interventions. You know, we know that housing, we know that um, labour market access or as will come out of the lockdown, the disproportionate impact of those kind of receding economies will have a profound impact on health. And, you know, there should be targeted interventions trying to address that. And those things are something that the government can can do tomorrow or certainly set out a strategy to try to do. I think that the way in which sometimes governments and administrations, and I don't think this is true of the Scottish administration at the moment, I think they're genuinely interested in trying to make sense of what's going on and to try to marshal the best evidence to make interventions meaningful. But I'm a, li- I'm a little bit more... I'm a little bit more cynical about the way in which the UK government is trying to approach this at the moment. I think there's enough data for them to be able to make meaningful interventions. And this is part of the paradox. You know, there's really good data in England, and there has been for a while now. Whereas that's not necessarily the case in Scotland. I think Scotland does need to generate more data sets to be able to make interventions that that reach the parts of the system that it wants to reach. So yes, more data, but there's also a lot of data out there which could be utilised to make interventions which will have a meaningful impact. And I guess the data to look at those impacts as well and look at how effective those interventions are. I mean, when you're talking there about things that will impinge disproportionately on ethnic minorities or that they'll be affected more, for example, issues like housing and access to the labour market. But in terms of sort of an intervention around that, how far should it be about addressing the challenges that everyone faces, for example, or will face around the labour market or around housing? Or how far do you think there should be interventions that are maybe more targeted at ethnic minorities? I I think, I mean, both, but I think there needs to be targeted interventions. So, I mean, any sophisticated understanding of policy will understand that it's received, it lands in contexts which aren't equal. And, you know, we've seen this in terms of trying to address health inequalities in the past. Governments will offer increasingly lifestyle approaches, you know, healthier eating, doing more exercise and so on, because it's cheap. You know, you don't need to change stuff necessarily to send those messages out. And then people take up those messages and lo and behold, the health inequalities widen because the middle classes will eat healthier and do more exercise. Whereas what was needed was targeted interventions to make sure that the people in low socioeconomic groups had better housing. I mean, DAMP, for example, is a really good predictor of health inequalities. Those kinds of interventions can't just be generic. You know, they need to be targeted to the groups that are most susceptible to those kinds of risks. And that's what I mean about kind of intelligent policy design, which then goes back to the point I was making earlier about connecting up with groups, with stakeholder groups, with community groups, with users, and to some extent reverse engineering policy on the basis of the intelligence you're getting back. And, uh, you know, there's times at which governments do that well, you know, to, to kind of devolve some of this thinking and then to report back. But it requires strategy, it requires a degree of long-term planning, which might be longer than the life course of one administration. 
But the things that Scotland have kind of tried to do, you know, it's a race equality framework strategy document, for example, the 16-year plan, which if implemented, and, you know, we're, we're kind of three or four years into that, if implemented, could make a profound change. But it's the implementation of stuff like that which is important too. So intelligence, consultation, targeted interventions, and also implementation. And, and how far are these sort of issues being addressed by some of the groups that are being set up? Because, I mean, that's often a sort of government reaction to an issue is set up a group to look at it in more detail. I mean, there's obviously the Equality and Human Rights Commission has just recently announced an inquiry about this. There's the expert reference group that you're on that Scottish Government has set up to look at ethnic minorities. Are these groups thinking about those questions or what questions should they be thinking about? Yeah, you're right to say that there's been a plethora of groups set up to look further into these kinds of disparities. They're all doing slightly different things, is my understanding. Some groups are more focused on generating data. Some special groups are convened more to think about policy interventions. I, I think there's a broad axis here between groups set up which are committed to taking uh, both a long and a broad view and groups which are set up to look at specific interventions. And I circle back to the things that I said in the early part of the conversation. I think that any kind of inquiry or any kind of group which wants to look at COVID-19, blackness and minority disproportionality purely in a local clinical way will be entirely valid, but I think it will just be short term unless it's also able to connect up to wider inequalities in terms of the things that, that we've discussed and which have been long recognised. So, you know, there's a series of new groups set up as you've identified, but actually... When you look at things like the Marmot report or even the, the Aitchison report at the turn of the century, which is the last, you know, uh, I think that was 99 or 2000, which was the last time ethnic disparities in health inequalities was properly investigated. There's nothing that looking at the present outcomes that would be a surprise to, to Aitchison. And in fact, it's not a surprise to Michael Marmot either. He wrote the other day in a commentary that, you know, these are precisely the systemic inequalities I identified, you know, way back when. And now they're being played out. So the groups that are able to generate more data, and especially in Scotland, you know, the, the special reference group is, is particularly interested in trying to connect up different forms of data sets, which paint a more, more holistic picture. I think that's just really important. But it can't just be that. It has to be about more long-term targeted interventions, which tie health disparities, inequalities to wider socioeconomic determinants, the social determinants of health. So I think it sort of takes us back to sort of one of the earlier points about actually there's a lot that we already know. And as you said, we've actually known about these systemic inequalities for, for decades now um, and, and getting on for, for more than that. I mean, obviously, the Black Lives Matters movement um, and some of the protests and increased focus that's been on inequalities and, and racism on the back of George Floyd's death has brought a, a new look at this, I guess, and a new visibility or, or an increased visibility. What connections, if any, would you draw to some of the issues that the Black Lives Movement is looking at and what, what ethnic minorities are experiencing in terms of COVID-19. Um, it feels like a really important moment to be discussing these issues in, in light of these mobilisations. So the first thing that I would say about the Black Lives Matters movement in relation to COVID-19 is that the BLM movements are specifically about wanting to elevate a recognition of the experience of people of African descent. Ergo, the meaning of the black in that. I mean, I think it has broader resonance for all racial minorities, but there is a particular view that historically, across a number of sectors, people of black African descent have been disproportionately 
targeted in terms of policing practices, but also overlooked in terms of things like meaningful health interventions. So in that respect, I think that's really important for elevating the experience of black populations, you know, within the NHS and, and more broadly outside of just clinical encounters with health services, you know, public health more broadly conceived, which has implications for all manner of things and not just, you know, COVID-19 for mental health, for stress, for anxiety. Uh, even things like hypertension are often, you know, associated with perceived stress at a societal level rather than, you know, at an individual level. So once you start to ask those questions, then it really kind of reverses the telescope and asks not of the experiences of, of black groups, but actually of the experiences of, of white majorities. What are a white majorities doing in a society in which to be white carries with it a certain kind of currency, a capital, which isn't named as such, it's just there, it's unspoken. It's the Archimedean norm. To be white is to be normal, to be something different is not. And I think that's an interesting challenge, I think, for people in the health community and beyond to try to wrap their heads around and not see disproportionality in terms of health outcomes as being matters of disease or viral conditions, but actually about a latent configuration or fabric of society at large. So that's kind of the, the subtle and the nuanced point. I think that the, the more charged point is that, it, I guess, it forces the question of black African disproportionality further up the policy discussion. When I was looking at some of the figures of the numbers of black uh, doctors and nurses and care workers who have contracted um, COVID-19, it's remarkable. It's, you know, it's really, really high. And the reasons for that aren't necessarily reflected in the quantitative data. They're partly reflected in the fact that these people have worked in institutions which perhaps haven't taken their well-being seriously enough. And I, you know, I have family and friends who work in primary care, and I cannot tell you in all honesty that I have every confidence that their employer will look after their welfare as well as they might look after their white co-workers. And, you know, I say that not because I'm paranoid or and so on. I, I say that based purely upon the evidence. And, that's, that, and if Black Lives Matter gets us to think in health sectors more seriously about that, then that's a really, really important um, advance that can be made. But it's not going to happen overnight and it will require more, more reflection, I think, on, on, on white brokers, people in power, people in the policy process, healthcare professionals, uh, as much as anything of asking something of, of people of black or African descent. I mean, one thing COVID does seem to have done is actually increase the focus on inequalities within society and particularly in, in the media. So, as you say, not that these inequalities haven't already been pre-existing, but actually has brought them maybe more to the surface, um, particularly around health inequalities. There's obviously been you know, quite a lot of talk as well, without wishing to downplay at all the tragic consequences of COVID, but also thinking about actually, well, how can we use this as a way to think about what a fairer society looks like? Do you feel that's within reach of fairer society? And you know, in terms of ethnic minorities, how might we get there? If, if you were sitting in, a, in the cabinet at the moment, whether at a UK level or Scottish level, you know, what would be the one or two things you'd be absolutely pushing for? That's a really good question. So on the first part of it, is it an opportunity to refocus or redouble efforts on inequality? Yes, it certainly is, but it brings with it more challenges. It's not an opportunity which is without cost. You know, we're coming out of the lockdown. 
which, as we've already talked about, will exacerbate inequalities. And so we're kind of already two steps behind where we were before we went in. Well, some of the things that we've talked about already in the discussion have been making sure that things like universal credit, housing benefits, and so on are accessible so that people don't find themselves in a, in a period of lag which then, for example, contributes to things like homelessness. So there's just, there's just kind of basics that I think coming out of lockdown that governments need to do to ensure that purely surviving the pandemic won't leave people in a much worse position. I think there's been something in the recognition of the contribution of key workers and the way in which before the pandemic and the lockdown, you know, these are people who are characterised as low-skilled. You remember that phrase, low-skilled workers, and it was being tied to migration points criteria and the Home Secretary in particular was taking great joy in coming up with a, a programme which would prevent people on, on low incomes entering the country. And this effectively caught kind of entry tier NHS staff, cleaners, it certainly ruled out social care workers and so on. I think that's been turned on its head, quite frankly. And I think enough people have realised that those people who are called low-skilled are actually, <laughs> are actually the workforce that need to be valued the most. And some of that's been reflected in, you know, clapping for the NHS and so on. And people have different views on that. Some people think it's kind of instrumental and other people think it's been appropriated or whatever else. But it certainly strikes a recognition that you have a relatively low-paid, multi-ethnic, multi-racial workforce that have, have kept the country going. And that, that comes with a need to recognise that when we come out of the pandemic. So better pay for people on the front line, better pay for key workers, a more secure employment, all that stuff I think is up for, for conversation. But as I said, you know, this requires political will as much as intelligent policy design. And, you know, there's a question as to how much desire there is for this presently at the UK level. Maybe Scotland can strike out and do things differently. There appears to be some kind of ambition for that. But it's as much as up to researchers and I suppose kind of commentators, journalists and so on to try to get governments to honour honor that direction of travel. And I think organisations like the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Scotland's National Academy as well, to make sure that we actually keep supporting and stimulating debate and drawing in informed evidence and expertise to help shape what happens, you know, at a societal level and indeed in terms of intelligent policymaking, to use your phrase. Professor Nazir Mir, thank you so much for talking to us today and, and sharing your expertise and experience and, and knowledge around the impact of COVID-19 on ethnic minorities. Thank you. Thanks very much.